0: Thank you so much for joining us again. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. How does that verse apply, though, when we go to work and unfortunately increasingly face anti-Christian hostility or even some forms of persecution on the job? What is the wisest way to respond and how do we respond biblically? We're gonna talk about that today with Dr. David Getch, who is Emeritus Vice President and Professor of Business at Northwest Florida State College, where he has served for 43 years. He also maintains a biblical counseling ministry focusing on issues Christians face in the workplace. And today we will be talking about his book, Christians on the Job, Winning at Work Without Compromising Your Faith. Dr. Getch, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you, and thank you for all you do with your program. Well, thank you. How do you see the overall picture of what it means to be a Christian in the workplace today? What kinds of issues do you see Christians facing on the job just for being Christians?
2: Well, it's it's getting worse, it, t- just to to put it mildly. You know, everything that happens in society eventually finds its way into the workplace. And you know better than anybody, all that's happening in society. At work, you have the age-old problems of temptation and peer pressure and that human desire to fit in, and that can cause problems for Christians, but those have always been there. We've always had to deal with that. But anymore, we're seeing more and more instances of anti-Christian bias, political correctness, and even persecution. Just two weeks ago, I talked with a person who was told he could no longer drive his car to work because it had one of our Florida— uh, right to life uh, a bumper we, we still we still can get a tag in Florida that's a pro-life tag yeah. you have to buy it but we can get, and he had one on his car and he's told he could no longer drive that car to work.
0: What that's crazy Just for having a license plate that somebody doesn't agree with he can't drive For having a pro-life
2: pro-Christian license plate, he's told. He could not drive on the campus of where he made his living. Wow. Isn't that something?
0: That is incredible. What was his response to it, just out of curiosity? How did he answer that that, that directive, you can't drive your car here?
2: Well, he, he came to me for help, and I directed him to the very last chapter in my book, which is okay, so what do you do when anti-Christian bias and rejection and that type of thing uh, crosses a line over into persecution, which I feel that was the case. And I directed him to the the Alliance Defending Freedom, who who handles these kinds of cases, and I told him, look, you need to stand up. You're right, and you need to stand up when you're right, and Alliance Defending Freedom will help you. And frankly, Alliance Defending Freedom, wins about 90% of its cases. these, These types of things when they're done are done by people who don't think through and they think they can simply bully Christians because we'll turn the other cheek. And so I told him right after you turned the other cheek, call Alliance Defending Freedom.
0: (laughs) Good words, good (laughs) words. I think that's well said. But, you know, we are seeing this change. As you've mentioned before, there have always been struggles on the job of various types, but we are now seeing a growing anti-Christian hostility as the culture changes. Do you see a particular moment in time when the fight became worse for Christians or when the situation became worse for Christians on the job and it was kind of a turning point?
2: Well, I'm afraid what we've been doing is boiling the frog, and it's my generation. I hate to say it, but I am a child of this. Well, I was born in the 50s, so I did my formative years in the 60s, and I see the 60s as when it all started, and then it is, we've been boiling the frog ever since, and it's just been creeping and creeping and creeping up on us, but yes, I I, I felt like... Oh, probably the first election of Barack Obama was where I started seeing more and more people coming to me with not the old-fashioned temptation, peer pressure, and that kind of problem, but the new anti-Christian political correctness. And I must hear now, Janet, I bet I hear 10 times a month, uh, you have freedom of religion where I work unless it's the Christian religion. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right, right. I know that is how it's becoming. If you were a Muslim and you were wearing a hijab, you'd get the red carpet rolled out for you. But if you're a Christian, you know, you're a third class, fourth class citizen. And and it's funny because look at the history and the roots and the foundation of this country. The Bible is the very foundation of this country, even though not every single founder was a Bible-believing Christian. Uh, this has been, a, for you know the most part, a Christian country, culturally at least, how in the world is it that the mindset has changed and said there's one religion that we can treat differently? Well, we've we've
2: become a nation that panders to different groups for political reasons unfortunately and we have people I say it now, we have people who would rather see America fail than see it succeed under someone who believes as a Christian. And one of the one of the one of the points I make in my book, though, and this is just, I spend a lot of time uh, when I'm wearing my, my uh, business professor's hat and when I'm wearing my uh, hat as a management consultant, I spend a lot of time with businesses who tell me, Dave, I cannot get employees who are honest, hmm. dependable, diligent. They are saying to me, I can't get employees who believe the Christian work ethic. It's set forth in Scripture. Yeah. And yet they don't want to call it that. They, But those are the values that still make you succeed in the workplace. Sure. And so I make the point in my book, listen, uh, you stick to who you are and what you believe. A career is a marathon, not a sprint. Good. You might get beat up in the short run for your beliefs, but in the long run, you're gonna prevail. I know I did, and I look, I spent 43 years so far in higher education. Other than Congress, there's probably not a place in the world more unfriendly to Christianity Than higher education.
0: Yeah, I hear you having spent many years in newsrooms, so I'm with you on that. (laughs) I put the newsrooms of America right up there in that in that category. But it's true. Are you seeing more conflicts? Would you say between, say, bosses and Christian employees, or between non-Christian employees and Christian employees? In other words, is it between employees that that there's more conflict, or is it the boss who's more upset with the Christian who's the employee? Uh, i 'm seeing
2: i 'm seeing more of this result of peer pressure, and what 's happening uh, you know people know when they 're doing wrong, so it 's like misery loves company people who are doing wrong want company too if you 're the only person doing right and they 're doing wrong you're going to come under a lot of pressure, yeah. and I'm seeing that all the time. One of the stories I tell in my book is of the, of the people who worked at uh, three different, it was the same bank but three different branches, and they would go out to eat every Friday, and one of them came up with the idea of, look, why don't we call this a business lunch and claim that we were entertaining potential clients? That way, we can claim it as a business lunch and get reimbursed by our, our bank, uh, for our meals instead of having to pay for it. And only one of the people there said, no, hmm. this is not right. That's stealing. This is not a business lunch. We're here as friends having fun. Yes. And so she wouldn't do it. And they went ahead without her and just excluded her from the group. And several months later, she got a, saw an email coming, uh, email through all the bank, that those three had been caught and fired for their nefarious little scheme.
0: Wow. Wow. In that kind of a scenario, would you have advised her to go to the boss and to reveal the scheme or to just keep her mouth shut? How would you handle that?
2: What I had, uh, eventually when we talked, what I had told her to do, she didn't know what to do and she let it go for a while. And By the time she talked to me and I told her what to do, this other thing happened. But what I advised her to do was go to those three people and give them a certain num a certain amount of time say a couple of days to stop or she would have to go to the boss
0: good yeah that's the right thing to do i because
2: mean yeah Well, sure. I mean, Christ expects us not to do wrong, but He doesn't expect us to abide wrongdoing either. He expects us to stand up to sin wherever it exists.
0: Yes, that's right. And that's such a difficult place to be in because you just want to go to work and get along with people and do your job and receive your paycheck. And I have heard so many stories just like you have, not as many, surely, but, you know, just anecdotes of, of Christians who say, I'm just trying to get my job done and then I'm in this situation and sometimes I'm not really sure how I ought to handle it. But there is a lot more to talk about. We're going to come back. Dr. David Getch, my guest, his book is called Christians on the Job. Stay with us. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today.
1: Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life.
0: Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young
1: mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child, and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn.
0: Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves 80% of the time they choose life would you please join us at Janet Mefford today to support the ministry of preborn for $140 you can provide 5 free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies one ultrasound is just $28 and every gift helps to donate please call now 855 855- 402-BABY, that's 855- 402-2229 or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Please call now with your gift 855-402-BABY That's 855-402-BABY baby 855-402-2229 or there's a banner to click at janetmefford.com
2: you're listening to janet mefford today and now here's janet
0: We're back on Janet Meffer today. Glad you're here and glad to be talking with Dr. David Getch, who is Emeritus Vice President and Professor of Business at Northwest Florida State College. His book is called Christians on the Job, Winning at Work Without Compromising Your Faith. This is such a practical topic. It really applies to all of us to some degree, Dr. Getch. and I'm glad that you've written this. When we're talking about a basic approach, going into work, living your life, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, letting your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father who's in heaven. What is a good starting place? If you have someone who's listening, who says, I'm about to start a new job. I want to be faithful to Christ on the job, but I also want to be a good employee. What are some basic tips you would give that Christian going into a new job, some good ground rules for being a Christian in the workplace?
2: That's a very good question. The book lays out a 12-step plan for just doing that, but let me just take one of them and emphasize it. I always tell Christians, approach your job as a ministry, think of yourself as a missionary, and let your example be a daily sermon. We're not hired to go into our jobs and preach sermons all day, and we're not hired to pull people away from the work they're being paid to do. And, and sermonize or read the Bible to them. We do that on breaks and before and after. But during work, we need to set example of the the Christian work ethic. We need to be honest. We need to be diligent. We need to treat people in a Christ like manner, whether they're customers or whether they're fellow employees. We need to show people in the workplace who may not know Christ and know his way, we need to show them a better way. And we do that by our example. And I always bring up the famous quote from Charles Spurgeon that all Christians are either missionaries or imposters. (laughs) And he didn't mean we all have to run to far off lands to be missionaries. He meant you, you are a missionary where God plants you, and you're a child of God, so there ought to be a family resemblance In your example,
0: that's excellent. And you pointed out something very important, which is you're not hired to preach sermons all day. And I don't know a lot of Christians who would do that. But that sometimes will come out. Can I witness to somebody on the job? Generally speaking, not while you're working, right? Not not sit. You're you're not doing evangelism when you're being paid to do your job, maybe lunch hour after work, something like that. But what would you say to a Christian about that?
2: I tell them, if you want to evangelize at work, set a good example of the Christian work ethic. Do your job the best you can be, the best there is there be. Give value back to the person who's employing you, because that is being a, that's being a missionary. That's the example they need to see. They need to see that people who are children of God do a good job when they are paid to do a good job. They They get the job done right. They get it on time. They can be Depended on, they can be relied on, all of those things, and so that's the example you set. And then that example may cause these people to say, "I'd like to know more about why you work the way you do." All right, after work, let's you and I stop somewhere and talk or at lunch unless you and I have a talk. I'll break out the Bible and show you exactly what I believe and
0: why I believe it. Good. that's excellent. Yeah, it, what you're saying is so important that we are to be good employees. I mean we're kind of losing this. I, I have such strong feelings as you do about the Christian work ethic and how important it is to be on time, do the job you were hired to do. Don't waste time if you don't have something to do, this is something instilled in me by my parents. Of course, if you have downtime at work, ask what can I do? Don't just sit there and waste the company Company's time. These things, though, are kind of fading away. You're not seeing as much of this, it seems, as you did years ago, where people are naturally all doing that. You can really stand out by having that kind of work ethic these days.
2: Yeah, we used to be what I call PhDs. In America, we were poor, hungry, and driven. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean PhDs <laughs> like me. I mean, we were poor, hungry, and driven. And now it's almost as if we're fat, lazy, and complacent. Mm-hmm. And I'm even seeing it in, in Christian families that are not passing on the Christian work ethic. I'm even seeing churches that are not. And when, if you, in this book, Jan, if you can look at the end of any chapter, there's actual instructional material at the end of every chapter, like review questions and discussion questions and discussion cases, so that Sunday schools and Bible studies and prayer breakfasts can use it to actually teach that Christian work ethic, because the church has got to get engaged in this. If we don't pass on the Christian work ethic, who's going to?
0: Exactly. That's excellent. Well, now your subtitle of your book, Winning at Work without Compromising your Faith, let's talk a little bit about the compromising angle because you are increasingly seeing situations at work, as you mentioned and talk about in the book, where to do what you're told, would mean that you're not doing the Christ-like thing, whether it's cheating or going along with a certain practice. How do you help Christians discern how to handle situations like that? For example, if you're, oh, we're all going to cheat the bank and we're going to put this on their tab, even though it's not really a business lunch. Generally speaking, what would you say to Christians about how to handle awkward situations, especially if you feel like your job is in jeopardy if you don't go along with it?
2: Yes, and I've seen that many times, had it happen to me myself, and I've counseled many people. That's that's chapter 5 in our book, and it's called Be Wise and Innocent When Translating Scripture Into Action. Here's the problem. You and I go to church on Sunday, if we see a brother or sister who's doing something they shouldn't, we can approach them in a certain way because we all have the Bible as the center of, you know, that's going to be our guidance in dealing with this. Mm. And we have our Christian beliefs and values. But if you're dealing with people who reject the Bible or don't know it, you have to find what I call a workplace-appropriate way to approach them. And here's, here's what I have found over the years. Often, the personal self-interests of the people who are doing wrong mesh with our Christian beliefs. Here's what I mean. You can say to somebody, okay, I I understand why you want to do that, get a little extra money in your check, but what happens when you're caught? Mm Who's going to be blamed when you're caught? And I keep a whole file of articles for my uh, students in college and for my uh, counseling clients of people whose careers have crashed and burned because they did the wrong thing thinking they wouldn't get caught. Wow. And so throughout the book, I give examples of this where you, you go into your boss and he sees wanting you to file a false report to make the sales look better or something. You say, well let me show you what happened here in this article. Can I get you to read this? It's gonna be worse for us when this is found out, and in this day and time, it's always found out. So no matter whether they believe in Christ or not, they do believe in their own self-interest. And when you can point out ways that their self-interests are vulnerable because of this short-sighted decision they're making, it'll turn them around.
0: That's a really good idea. I like that a lot. Now, now for the person who really is experiencing a form of persecution on the job, and, and a lot of us know examples of that or have lived it out, how do you help someone discern when to fight back and when to leave and just walk away or to stay and fight? I mean, it's difficult at times to know whether or not to mount the fight or whether or not it's just better off, find, find a new job and just forget about it. How, how do you make your way through those sorts of circumstances?
2: Or do both, find another job and also fight back yeah, right. after the after the fact. right? Um, yeah, I, what I do in those cases is if, I sit and talk with them, and that's when they need some help. That's when they need some counseling help, and sometimes even that's not enough. I mean, I've got I've got a lot, I've got 50 years of experience in the private sector, the military, higher education as a Christian counselor. Sometimes I can't help them with that. That's when I put them in touch personally with the ADF because those guys have a good feel for you can win this thing or you won't win this thing, and here's what will happen if you win it, and here's what will happen if you don't. And that's why I have a chat. Chapter 12 in this book where, look, if, if it comes down to actually persecution, be very careful about how you handle it. I do say in the book, always make quitting your job and going somewhere else your, your last resort option, because if that kind of stuff is going on where you work, what they need more than anything is your good Christian example. Right. But if your livelihood is is Put at odds or becomes vulnerable. I, I I tell them contact the ADF. They will free of charge. They will help you decide whether you should just leave and then file suit, or just leave. Period.
0: Is there one particular story of persecution in the workplace that stands out to you among all the stories you've heard over the years?
2: Y- yeah, and, and it it was it was this that there was a um, there was a particular manager who was a lapsed Christian. He had been a Christian, and he was excommunicated by his church for things that he did. And and believe me, he should have been—I won't get into it, but he should have been excommunicated. So he went the other way. He became just a zealous anti-Christian, and and when that happened— he went around to people, and this is in the book, he went around to people who had, you know, the 23rd Psalm hanging in their office and things like we do, framed Bible verses and things like that. And he made them take them down. He made them get rid of their Bibles. Hmm. He stopped uh, prayer breakfasts that were happening on site before, before work, but they were employees getting together for a prayer breakfast, uh, Bible studies at lunch. He cut out all of that. And was just about as, uh, or, you know, just about as bad as he could be in, in dealing with the people. Truly, truly giving the Christians the hardest assignments and then writing them hard and not giving them the support they needed and so forth. And eventually they did have to just band together and, uh, uh and, and, and bring suit against him. And, and they won.
0: Wow. Well, as they should, as they should. And, you know, you would love to think that that when you walk into a workplace situation, everybody's going to be fair. But the truth is, people are human and you do find situations like that. Everything you've been talking about as we've been discussing this, I'm thinking, yeah, that reminds me of something that I saw or went through or someone I talked to went through the same sort of thing. But I I think it's important, as you mentioned, to set a First Corinthians 13 example at work. I thought that was really good advice as well
2: it is and, and and also, as you're dealing you know you you had a really good program on l g b t q issues and that kind of thing, and one of the things that I say about political correctness in the workplace, and it's it's becoming worse and worse, is, look, it is always better to be biblically correct than politically correct. People who are on the receiving end of politically correct platitudes are not stupid. They know when people are just using the right terms and saying the supposed right thing just because they feel like they have to and they really don't mean it. Yes. But they also know when somebody's showing them true Christian love. And if you show true Christian love to people, they don't care if you say um, which of those terms you use.
0: Very good. Well, Dr. David Getch, thank you so much, Dr. Getch. Christians on the Job is the name of the book, and we'll be right back.
2: This is Janet Mefford
0: Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back to Janet Mefford Today. Mark Twain once said, it is curious that physical courage should be so common in the world and moral courage so rare. I think that's true. And it's why we all need heroes to look to who embody moral courage born out of moral character. Well, my next guest has done just that. Pat Williams is senior vice president of the NBA's Orlando Magic. He has more than 50 years of professional sports experience and has written more than 100 books. His latest is called Character Carved in Stone, the 12 core virtues of West Point that build leaders and produce success. And Pat, it's just great to have you with us. How are you?
1: Janet, I'm well, and uh, nice to catch up with you. And I look forward to our chat.
0: Me too. You talk about speaking at West Point. I just enjoyed, the, the whole book is great, and I enjoyed going through your explanation of what it was like to be in the presence of those benches near the Battle Memorial that have those 12 character traits carved there in stone. Can you tell people a little bit about that and what was the impetus for the book and kind of inspired you to put these stories together?
1: Janet, it was several years back, I was invited to go to West Point and speak uh, to the Army uh, sports teams, all the sports teams, men and women's, and their coaches. Well, after I finished, uh, they gave me a tour of the West Point campus, <clears throat> which is a very powerful experience, by the way. We ended up in a little park uh, called Trophy Point. It's uh, slightly, it's elevated, and it looks down on the historic Hudson River. And as we were going through the park, I noticed a bench. Well, I guess every park in the world has a bench. (laughs) But as I looked further, I noticed there were more benches, and I counted all of them. There were 12 benches, which seemed like a lot of benches for a fairly small park. Right. But for some reason, I went over and looked at one of the uh, benches up close, and I noticed a word had been carved into the end of that bench, Uh, a word like courage, uh, and and on the other end of the bench as well. And that prompted me to go explore the other benches, and I noticed at the end of each bench there was a different word carved into that bench on both ends. Words like dedication and determination and integrity and loyalty and trust, those kind of words. And I figured, Janet, at that point there had to be a backstory. Well, sure enough, there was. Uh, we learned that the class of 1935 at West Point, uh, as a class gift, uh, donated those benches. And their committee had selected those words as words that uh, should be part of every character quality of every cadet. <laughs> whoever came through the place. And uh, I I, I thought immediately, boy, this is a well-kept secret. (laughs) I I didn't know anything about this. I don't think many people would have. And so we talked to the publisher, and I said, we got a book idea here. Why don't we take each word and do a chapter on that particular word, and then see if we can find a West Point graduate who best models that word. Yes. Well, the publisher liked the idea and uh, uh, we put it together. Uh, we asked Mike Krzyzewski, uh the Duke basketball coach, who's also a West Point grad, if he would do the forward, mm-hmm. and he uh, graciously agreed to do that. And that's how this book came about.
0: Yeah. Well, you even include uh, Mike Shashevsky in the character trait of responsibility. So let's start with him. How did he come to embody responsibility, would you say?
1: Well, here Mike tells the story when he was a a plebe up there, Janet. Uh, It was a cold, messy January day. Uh, He had his uh, uniform on, neatly pressed. His shoes were brilliantly shined. And coming across the campus with his roommate, somebody stepped in a puddle of gook, (laughs) it might have been a roommate, and and, and splashed it all over his beautiful shoes. Oh boy. And and Mike had a decision to make, do I rush back to my room and get these shoes fixed, or do I try and get to my next class? Well, wouldn't you know it, he was stopped at that point by an officer who challenged him about the shoes. (laughs) And Mike said, well, officer, I was just walking across the campus. What? And at that point, the officer interrupted and said, young man, uh, here at West Point, when you were challenged by an officer, you have one of three answers. Yes, sir. No, sir. No excuse, sir. Right. And Mike, who's now in, on into his 70s, would tell you, Uh, That was a turning point experience in his life as an 18-year-old. He said, I learned that day that um, uh, there are no excuses. And he adopted the philosophy, (laughs) this was done well, and I did it. This was done poorly, and I did it. But in either case, I am responsible.
0: Yes, right. So
1: that, that was one of the... Uh, reasons that uh, we, we put Mike in there with that particular quality.
0: Well, that's a great, great anecdote because you look at what's going on in our culture now and there seems to be a real trend of people not wanting to say no excuses, sir, not wanting to say, um, I take responsibility for what I did. In fact, that, that seems to be something a lot of people are lamenting is gone or at least is on the way out, this concept of personal responsibility.
1: Janet, it's a great point that you have made. I agree with you, Um, particularly among leaders. uh, 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 If things turn out well after a decision is made, uh, oh, we hear about it. Oh, we we learn all about it. But if the decision doesn't go well, well, in often cases, a a sense of instant amnesia sets (laughs) in.
0: It's true. That's true. Really,
1: I have no memory of that. And then it's important to have a a battery of spin doctors available Hmm. uh, to get you out of the mess you're in because you didn't want any part of this because it didn't work out. But I think great leaders uh, step up and take that approach. I am responsible. I'm, I'm in charge here. And I I take full responsibility.
0: How do you inculcate, and I want to get into some of these other stories as well, especially when we get back from the break, but how do you inculcate a sense of responsibility in the next generation? West Point does it so well, but for those who are not in the military and don't go to West Point, we all need to develop that character trait.
1: Well, let me just talk about all the aspects of character, Janet. It starts at home. Uh, It starts with our parents. Yes. Uh, first of all, they must model it. They must model character so that young people grow up seeing it. Secondly, uh, we need to teach it. Yep. N- no, none of us come into this world uh, with character qualities carved in stone. No, we don't. Uh, we, we all come into this world you know, with a sinful nature according to the Scriptures, right. and, and we need to um, teach character. Uh, as parents and grandparents and teachers and coaches and youth workers, uh, we, it, it needs to be caught as well as taught.
0: Yes, it does. Yeah, it does. And it's, I think it's so important what you're saying. If you are seeing it modeled in your parents and you're being taught good character, then even when you're in a situation and culture where good character is not common and it's not being exhibited, you still have to behave that way. And I know that's one of the traits that also comes out, I think, in a lot of the stories in your book. You do the right thing, even when everyone around you isn't necessarily doing the right thing.
1: Oh I think that's so true and in, in the case here with these these people that we featured in this book the West Point grads, I think that's what happened. Hmm. Uh, they were not concerned about public opinion they were not concerned about feathering their own nest. Uh, they did what was right and um, and that's why uh, that's why they're remembered today to a large degree yes uh, because of the way they lived their lives and the way they uh, hone that character into their lives, and boy, that should be a good lesson to all of us, Janet. After after we've left this earth, uh, we want our children and grandchildren and uh, people who knew us to have high regard for the fact that we did have courage and we did have responsibility and integrity and dignity and discipline.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're going to go to a break here in a couple of seconds, but when we come back, I want to get into some of these stories because you mentioned, Pat, that you highlight a lot of these West Point grads who are embodying these character traits that we should all aspire to have. The name of the book is Character Carved in Stone. Pat Williams with us. We'll come back on Janet Mefford today after this break. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat.
2: The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope, and I saw his heart beating on the screen.
0: And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn has 10 centers that do not have ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. 855-402-BABY. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. My guest is Pat Williams, Senior Vice President of the NBA's Orlando Magic and author of Character Carved in Stone. This is such an important thing for us to hear about, the 12 core virtues of West Point that build leaders and produce success. We were talking before the break, Pat, about Mike Shashevsky. People know that name, of course, Duke's coach and the aspect of responsibility that he learned, no excuses, and, and how West Point really inculcated that in him. But you talk about a lot of these other character traits. I thought it was really interesting to read about you. Ulysses S. Grant, uh, the 18th president of the United States, and of course, uh, during the American Civil War, he led the Union Army. What about this trait of compassion? Because when I think about Ulysses S. Grant, the first character trait that doesn't come to mind is compassion, although, you know, you think about something like strength or dignity, something like that, but why choose that character trait?
1: A great question, Janet. He, uh, listen, his nickname as the war went on was Butcher Grant. I mean, he And a lot of a lot of soldiers were killed under his uh, leadership and all however if you study his life he truly was a compassionate man uh, he cared deeply deeply about his soldiers cared deeply about his staff cared deeply deeply about his wife and he cared deeply about the horses that were uh, you know, such a, you know, the key part of transportation in those days. Sir. There's one story, One story, Janet, uh, during the war he saw a soldier uh, just whipping and beating unmercifully his horse. And, and Grant stopped and, and went over to this soldier and just reamed him out mm. uh, about uh, what he was doing. Threatened him to within an inch of his life. And, and, and the reason was that, that Grant, uh, a real horseman, uh, had, had just a great love and heart for, uh, for these animals. Hmm. So we, we, as we studied Grant, we really came away saying uh, that this military leader, uh, this hero of the Civil War, Boy, he was a compassionate man in in every area of his life.
0: Yeah, yeah. And like I said, you don't normally think about that of a famous military man like Ulysses S. Grant. But what is the tie-in there? If you are a compassionate leader, even as a military leader, there may be some people who say, how can those two things go together? And what difference would compassion make if you are commanding an army?
1: Janet, let me just put another word in there. Uh, let's just call it people skills. Good. Uh, great leaders, and this really is a leadership book, uh, great leaders have people skills. They do. They care, they care about people. They're interested in other people. Uh, they have a heart for people, empathy for people. I guess what I'm really trying to say is they love people.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, and every great leader that I've ever studied, uh, that was the case. And and some, you know, didn't think it was all that important. They're, they tell that story of Richard Nixon when he was in the White House as president. Janet, uh, he once said, actually, this job as president would be pretty good if you didn't have to deal with people. <laughs> right? Said Mr. Nixon. Well, he <laughs> may have been joking, but. Uh, every job uh, that I've ever in, uh, read about or been involved with, Janet, involves people. Right.
0: That's right. There,
1: there's not one that I've found that doesn't. Yeah. And, and great leaders understand that. And they are really uh, extremely involved and focused on working with people.
0: That's and so not, true. And,
1: Janet, not all people are easy.
0: No. No, they're not.
1: Uh, <laughs> you... you, you uh, you, you can't deal with people with, with a spray can. Uh, you, you've got to deal them with a fine brush uh, because they're all different and they all need our personal attention.
0: So true. Great
1: leaders understand that.
0: They sure do. You talk also about Buzz Aldrin. Everybody knows Buzz Aldrin, the famous astronaut. And you mentioned this character trait of dedication. But you mentioned in this chapter that Buzz Aldrin wouldn't have been an astronaut without his fellow West Point grad, Ed White. Now, that's kind of an interesting story. Why is that?
1: Well, I think it's safe to say that we need in our life um, cheerleaders, we need in our lives companions. We need in our lives friends. Yes, we do. Who see something in us and they're there uh, pushing us and boosting us. They're not tearing us down. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want us to succeed. And and, and when we don't succeed, uh, they're as disappointed as we are. And when they do succeed, they're not jealous.
0: Mm, good point.
1: They're not resentful. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I I think it's important, Janet, in all areas of our life to surround ourselves with life enhancers. Great. Walt Disney made up that word, by the way. (laughs) Life enhancers. Those are people who are rooting for us and cheering for us and urging us to live to our full potential. Sure. Ed White was that kind of guy, kind of man. Yeah. And Buzz Aldrin, uh, Janet, who's still living, I just read about him this morning. Uh, He's 89 years old, and he's still with us, the man who uh, was up there on the moon. Think about that for a
0: minute. Oh, man. It's hard to imagine, but he's an incredible American. You know, another person that really draws my attention, and all of them do, but when you talk about being a people person and having people skills as a leader, you talk about another man in the book, General Matthew Ridgway, under the character trait of loyalty. And you mentioned that it was General Ridgway who knew their names. This was kind of the point you're making. This is also sort of a people skill, uh, um, you know, anecdote about this general. Why was he important? Why do you think this story is such a good one?
1: Well, Janet, I, uh, uh, I, I'm a fan of Ridgway. And, and when I learned that on uh, the morning of D-Day, uh, he was parachuting behind enemy lines into France with his soldiers. <laughs> he he was not back in London, and he was not out on a boat, you know, shouting out orders. Uh, he uh, he parachuted into France with his with his soldiers. Think about that for a minute. Incredible. And um, uh, that's why his soldiers were were, were so dedicated to him and, and 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 loved the man. And then, of course, you know when Korea erupted and Harry Truman made the decision to relieve Douglas MacArthur of his duties there. Well, guess who stepped in? It was Matthew Ridgway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he's a real American hero. Unfortunately. Oh, the average American probably doesn't know much about him. I hope this book will kind of um, will kind of revive uh, General Ridgway's um, sense of honor, you know and, and well, well deserved.
0: It is well deserved. But,
1: but can you imagine Here, here's the general jumping out of a plane with his soldiers
0: Mm-mm.
1: and uh, pulls the the parachute cord. And, and there he is down in in France, you know, behind enemy lines
0: astonishing that's,
1: that's <laughs> another by the way Janet that's another great trait that I've observed with almost every leader uh, they are visible and available
0: hmm. yeah
1: right. uh, they're not they're not locked up in an ivory tower somewhere
0: yeah getting their hands dirty <laughs> they're,
1: they're they're down there among their people you know involved in the and in, in whatever's going on in, in, in any field far beyond the military, but they're visible and available. That's what great leaders do. And when they start removing themselves, Janet, it's just a matter of time uh, before their leadership responsibilities are really start fading.
0: Yeah, Good point. Good point. You know, one of the other stories that really stood out to me was your your mention toward the end of the book of Peter Wang. We talk a lot about these figures in history that we admire for great reasons. But this was the brave young man who was killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. People will remember this. He held the door while other students were escaping and he ended up being shot. But it is interesting. He was granted posthumous admission to West Point. Which is such a a neat thing, because it's not the case that all the heroes are in the past. We have heroes in our own day, and he exemplifies that.
1: Well, Janet, I I rarely say this about any book, but I'm going to bet that most people, when they finish this book and read that last little piece, uh, if they're not tears, there will be a big lump in your throat.
0: Oh, for sure. For sure.
1: I mean, here's this young man who sacrificed his life. And, and, and even as a youngster, he knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to go to West Point. Yeah, he did. And, and that, was, that was, I mean, his biggest goal, his biggest dream. Well, he never got to go there because of that uh, horrible scene last year in South Florida. But uh, the Academy honored him. I'm so glad about that.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, and, that,
1: and that young man you know, needs to be remembered as much as General Eisenhower and General MacArthur and Mike Shashevsky and all those other people we write about.
0: Great point. Yeah, it's you're, you're right about that, Pat, and all of these stories are really worth reading. Just a great book. Character Carved in Stone, Pat Williams with us, and so good to talk to you, Pat. I appreciate the book and very much appreciate your being with us.
1: Janet, a million thanks.
0: Very good. Thanks a lot. Pat Williams, thanks for being here. And thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford Today. We'll see you next time.